This is Driven by Data, the podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Driven by Data, the podcast, season two, powered by Orbition Group and hosted by me, Kyle Winterbottom. We're delighted to bring you another season of Driven by Data, the podcast, which boasts even more data analytics and AI thought leaders from across the globe. Our aim remains the same to uncover how some of the most prominent leaders within the data analytics community tackle our industry's most trending topics, told in order to share knowledge, ideas and experience. And just as in season one, to give back to the global data and analytics community. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast, season two. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Ian Wallace, who is the People Analytics and Insight Director at HMRC. So, Ian, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Carl. Good to be here. Uh, pleasure is is all ours. Uh, apologies about the technological issues. We'll uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll get there in the end. Um, so, Ian, as you know, where we always start is by asking our guests to give themselves a a brief introduction into their background and, I guess, journey up until this point. If uh, if you'd be so kind. Yeah, I'll try and make it potted. Um, it, it's been many and varied. I think HMRC is now something like the twentieth organisation I've been in in one shape or form. So. So I started my career back in the days when data and analytics was something that nobody understood what what you did. So whenever I got asked the question as to what do you do for a living, people just looked blankly and would sort of say, yeah, but what do you do? <laughs> so so I started back in 1988, seems a long time ago, um, nominally as a market research manager, but actually most of what I was doing was analytics, building segmentation models, forecasting models, that sort of thing for for a logistics company and um, and from there I really just um, found that analytics was my thing so progressed through um, a number of organizations um, uh, spent uh, seven and a half years at HSBC um, doing some really interesting stuff building an analytics team for the business to business side uh, for for marketing and um, and leading on building the single customer view for HSBC, the first first UK bank to do so, which was was fascinating as well. So um, so spent a bit of time working for myself, running my own organisation, data strategists, uh, delivering programmes as an interim in the data and analytics space. Some fascinating stuff that I did over the years, um, and then uh, found myself doing five years building out uh, data and analytics capability within uh, MOD and. Um, and from there have moved into HMRC, uh, into the world of people, which which I'm sure we'll get on to later. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, look, where normally our next question would normally be tell us a little bit about the business. Right. But anyone based in the UK obviously will very much know who HMRC are. But we have a probably 70 percent of our audience is global, so might not be as familiar. So just give our non-UK listeners a bit of insight into what the HMRC is and, and does, if you would. Yeah. So so essentially it's the the tax payments and customs authority for the UK. So we collect the money that pays for 
the UK's um, public services and also uh, we give financial support through um, various um, credit schemes back to, to individuals. Um, there's actually over 20 different forms of um, taxes and duties that we're responsible for collecting. So it's quite quite varied um, from, from wealthy individuals to um, uh, sole traders to big corporations. Um, I was doing a bit of research, as, as you know, um, background in research. So, so I discovered that the first land tax was in 1012 to defend the UK or, or England from the Vikings. Um, so that's <laughs> as far back as taxation seems to go. So, so we've been at it for um, 10 centuries now. And all the way through to um, the present day, um, HMRC was formed from bringing the customs and the taxation side together to make it one, which isn't the case in all countries. I also discovered that in 1939, in the middle of uh, the war, Inland Revenue moved its head office from London to Landudno, which which sounds fascinating. How on earth they chose Landudno? I guess it's quite <laughs> away from London and the bombs, but... Uh, but yes, Inland Revenue for, for the Second World War was based in Landudno. Interesting. Well, every day is a school day. So there you go. Yeah. I, 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 let's, let's hope that one comes up on a pub quiz over the next couple of years. I'll probably remember that one. So, uh, so yeah, obviously you, you've landed at the HMRC, People Analytics and Insight Director. Just give us a, an understanding of kind of what you're there to, to do and achieve, if you would. Yeah. So um, the fascinating bit about um, People Analytics for me as someone who spent over 30 years doing analytics on customers, is um, how overlooked the whole people side within an organisation seems to be. And there are organisations who've been doing this sort of thing for a decade or more. So, so you know, it's not like it's brand new, but certainly in terms of the, the publicity it gets, the um, uh, focus it gets, it's, it's very much in, in the backwaters, I suppose. Uh, but increasingly coming to the fore. My role is to really understand the employee experience at HMRC and understand how we generate effectively a win-win, how um, it can be a better environment um, for the employees of of HMRC. Uh, We have an aspiration to make HMRC a great place to work. We're keen to build um, um, talent pipelines within the organisation. But obviously, um, looking at it from an HMRC point of view, there's plenty of evidence that says really engaged employees deliver a far better customer experience. And given our role here is um, specifically to serve the UK in collecting taxes and uh, duties and paying um, credits out, the more effective we can be at doing that, the more efficient we are. And that's really the goal for, for the organisation. How do we get to that optimal space where we're getting the most from our employees, but the employees um, really enjoy being part of HMRC and see a career path for them there. Mm, yeah, I'm really looking forward to jumping into the people bit because, um, you know, probably one of the, the more closely aligned topics in regards to the, the day-to-day world that, that we live in. Um, but before we do that, obviously, I know that you, you had uh, written a book which kind of went live and published last year, I think it was, right? Um, 
just give us an insight what what led you to that point it always fascinates me when people write books because I, I really i'm just curious as to you know what the trigger point was that made you think you know what i'm going to put all of this in paper and i'm going to go through the absolute ordeal of having to to write it because i know it's no easy feat so i guess what 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 was that trigger point as to why and and then you know what what were you trying to get out of it I think it's a good job I didn't speak to you first, Kyle, because everything <laughs> you said is so true. But um, maybe in this blissful ignorance of um, not having as such written a book before, I've, I've actually published things before as, as part of my um, role uh, many years ago when I used to work in the automotive sector. But um, but to actually write a book on the on data, um, you know, the field I've, I've spent many years in was was a challenge. Um, how did it come about? It came about, and I keep name dropping him, Ian Borthwick, um, who's head of publishing at um, BCS, uh, the British Computer Society, bumped into me at a conference some years ago and um, and said, uh, I'd really like you to write a book for us. And after being, you know, suitably polite, um, told him, <laughs> no chance, that seems madness. Uh, why would anyone be interested in me writing a book? And to give Ian credit, he is like a dog with a bone. So um, every time I bumped into him, he said, uh, how about writing that book? And um, he obviously wore me down because at some point I sort of showed a vague interest. I think I, I just decided I couldn't keep saying no. So I had to come up with a different tack. So I basically said to him, well, if I was to say yes, what would it involve? And I think he knew by that stage, you know, it's a bit like a fisherman. He was reeling me in at that point. He knew that he'd got me. So it sort of took off from there. Um, we discussed what the topic would be. Um, we we both had a real interest in doing a book on data strategy. Uh, my interest in doing the book was um, to really help people understand how to get a data strategy implemented. And through many years, particularly in my interim career, I found that lots of organisations had had a stab at writing a data strategy, but it never left the shelf. Um, it had never seen action. So lots of people put in effort to create something, got a tick in the box, and then everyone forgot about it. And often I'd say, do you have a data strategy? And people say, no, what's one of those? And about two months into the, the project, I'd suddenly come across one and go, oh, you did have one after all. And people would be as surprised as I was. So I just, just felt that there was a real gap between how do you turn a data strategy into something that you can actually deliver and get value from. And my, my focus throughout my career has increasingly moved into that sort of strategy implementation because I, it's hard enough writing a strategy, but the implementation of it is often really tricky and difficult because you're competing for airtime. Um, there's lots of stuff going on. Often it's not easy to do the things that you need to do. So it takes real perseverance and and uh, commitment to do it. So I just felt that trying to put down some of my experiences, some of the research that I've done over the years into a book might help others. And so that was the that was the thinking. I was very keen that it was a book that was practical to guide people through. So hence it's called, you know, from definition to execution, because I try and take people chapter by chapter through um, some of the thinking process. Yeah, I mean, it's a really fascinating point because obviously this isn't to say that, you know, constructing a data strategy is easy by any stretch, but there's evidently a huge gap between 
writing something up that's in a nice fancy slide deck and then what comes out of the other side <laughs> of that um don't want to kind of linger on this point too much but was there anything within the book you know as you were researching it kind of if you were to kind of label one point as to normally what one of the biggest obstacles or barriers to entry is of getting that you know that strategy off the shelf into the real world is there anything kind of that stands out for you in that space well what i found really interesting carl was that i went into this thinking from my own perspective, I've seen lots of failed attempts in organisations to, to either write a strategy to begin with or turn that strategy into action. So, so I had a certain preconceived notion that um, this was obviously something that people found hard to do. But what really fascinated me, because my, my research was looking at strategy in the whole, so you know, corporate strategy and, and so on. When I looked at the research, strategy as a whole suffers from that. So this isn't a data strategy problem. This is a universal problem that organisations have around strategy. And there was a there was a piece of research done that, that I, I had to sort of keep rereading because I just couldn't believe it, that I think it was 400 CEOs from global organisations from Asia to Europe to the US had been interviewed and they were given a list of, I don't know, 20, 30 things to, to rank in terms of what was the, the area of greatest concern or weakness in the organisation. And it was things like, you know, um, uh, long-term growth or um, the impact of, of economic change or um, talent or whatever it may be. There was a great long list of really big things. And one of them was... Um, execution so being able to execute on a strategy and that was overwhelmingly the number one for 400 global ceos and i thought so my little bit of of the world in 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 data and analytics where i've seen companies really struggle with this um, in that data sphere this is magnified across the world for any organization doing any strategy and I just found it astounding that this this little notion I had, which was there's got to be a market out there for helping people understand how to turn the strategy into reality. Um, I could have just taken data off the front of the book. And, and, and most of what I've written applies to strategy generically because mm. it's largely the same disciplines and the same approach, regardless of whether you put data at the front of it or any other topic. And my, my point that I stress is that data strategy has to be aligned to the corporate or business strategy. But of course, if the business strategy or corporate strategy isn't being delivered, isn't being executed, then it, it inevitably hinders what you're trying to do in the data strategy space. Um, so I just found it amazing that, that you know, 400 global CEOs had overwhelmingly put this number one. Hmm. Uh, and so the more I dug into it, the more I got into um, research about the rate of failure of being able to implement strategies. And um, I've, I've often said to people in the period since I started researching the book, if, if I was 20 or more years younger, I would be pursuing a career um, in strategy implementation because that is the biggest challenge that the world seems to have in in moving organizations forwards 
So, so that was the real revelation for me that that the more I dug into it, the more I looked, the more evidence there was of this being a really big issue. Yeah, yeah. And I think that brings us quite nicely into the people element there, right? Because I mean, as a business owner myself, there's often things where, you know, we will sit down as a leadership team and we'll start fleshing out some ideas and we'll brainstorm like, right, this this is great. We need to focus on this. We need to do more of this. We whatever the case may be, and then you very quickly you know look at yourself in the mirror, look around your room, and go, okay, well, we want to do this, but we don't have the right people to do this. So we need to start asking questions of of, of others to understand where are the limitations, what are the challenges, what does it take, you know, blah blah blah, which I think kind of boils it all back down to the importance of people. And having the right people to do in whatever capacity I'd, I'd say right strategy or, or otherwise it's about you know the the skills and aptitude of getting the right people in to ask the right questions to deliver the right the right pieces of work so i know that's something that you're a massive advocate of is people and building high performing teams and that you know being the foundation of success so that's probably a good starting point you know throughout your 30 plus year career Ian how do you go about in your opinion building a high performance team and how do you know when you're at that point because I think that's often what people struggle with right they they kind of know okay we need to get these types of skills we need to let them develop we need to do this this and this but often you know what's the end goal and how do you know when you're there or approaching there if that makes sense yeah and I I think it's um I think it's one of those things where um, how do you know when you've got there? I think that it's something that needs constant work. I don't think there's a point at which, you know, you take your foot off the gas. To use a sporting analogy, you, you look at the Premier League and, and Liverpool and Man City, they've sort of gone hammer and tongs at it um, throughout the season. Not one of them has let up till, you know, we, we get to the end of the season and there's a point in it. And so... You couldn't say that one of them wasn't high performing and the other was. They were clearly both high performing teams, but um, somewhere along the line, Liverpool were a point behind Man City. And I think it's the same in in any sort of walk of life that you have. Um, there's there's always the opportunity to do better. And I think that the there's a balance to be struck. And I think as I as I probably have managed more and more teams in more and more environments, the more I realise that um, my favourite word to use is is optimising it. So how do you get to the best balance where it's really interesting work, you've got people really motivated, you've got a common goal or purpose, you know where you're trying to get to, and you're delivering value to to the end customer. And if you can optimise those, and um, get people to be all pulling together as a team rather than being you know a skilled bunch of individuals because we've all seen how that turns out Um, you know you can go and buy the best players in the world doesn't necessarily mean they can play together a lot of it's about the the managing the coaching the the strategy that goes behind it so i think that um, the high performing team is something that you can recognize but but it still needs work it still needs to be kept um, very much fresh. I've used a number of techniques. One of my favourites um, that I've also um, delivered for other teams is is something called um, the Majorison McCann 
team management profile or, or it's often called the team wheel. It's a bit akin to um, uh, the the background to how things like Myers-Briggs works um, and, and other things like that. But what it really focuses on is preferences. Um, so what are people's work preferences? Well, what do they really enjoy doing? And if you give them something in that sweet spot, they're going to be a really high performer. And so my my philosophy has always been play to people's strengths. Don't don't highlight their weaknesses. Um, if you've got a blend of a, a team, you should have people who can cover the weaknesses of others. And so hence why it needs to be a collective. You know, you don't you don't need your goalkeeper to be an expert at crossing the ball from the right wing. You need the goalkeeper to be able to do what the goalkeeper is there to do. And similarly, you, you hire people who are good at what they do and have the aptitude to broaden and develop. And that's been my philosophy throughout. My, my team today, um, we, we've largely come together over the last couple of years. Uh, I think that we are getting there. We are, we are um, certainly a higher performing team than we were a year ago when we were going through that early stage of um, finding our way, both in the organisation and as a team. And I, I think that the best recognition you can get is when people as your end customer really start to see the value that you're delivering and hence you become an integral part of the organisation. So when I started at um, HSBC, I had uh, had a team of three. Uh, by the time I left, admittedly having taken on more responsibilities, but uh, with, with a team based out in India, we were a team of nearly 50. That was entirely grown off the back of the value that the organisation kept seeing being realised and therefore wanting to invest further and understand how we could get more. And um, integrating people into a team is so important because if they buy into the same team ethos, the same way of working um, and bring their own unique skills and talents to the team, then you build the team's capability. So, so it does need hard work. It does need um, uh, an identification of what each person brings and to be able to harness that whilst integrating them into, into the way that the rest of the team operates. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. There was something you said throughout that which really resonated and that was, you know, people, um, you, you build high performing teams but the people in it are, you know, they, they enjoy the work that they do do and obviously they see that the work they are doing is of value to to the purpose of the organization um and that's something that i mean i put something on up on linkedin earlier this week about this exact topic because you know once upon a time during the hype cycle of data analytics jobs you know it was there were some very obvious drivers you know money technology the certain types of projects blah 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 and i think a lot of organized uh, a lot of people have gone into organizations where um not intentionally but lip service may have been paid to this stuff you know we want to be data driven or data enabled or data informed or whatever buzzword we're using but the reality is is probably back to your strategy point you know they they either didn't have a strategy towards that or they weren't very good at executing it and what that led was a, to a lot of people spending a lot of time doing some no doubt great work but it wasn't being incorporated into the day-to-day -day of the business and therefore you know it, 
for them that wasn't visible they couldn't feel it there was no tangible outputs that you know um people didn't know whether the work they was doing was good bad ugly whether it was used whether it was not there was no feedback loop so now you know a real driver for many people that we speak to on this side of the fence is I want to be somewhere where the where the work we do is valuable, where it's used, where it's visible, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So that bit really resonated with me. The other final, the other piece I find fascinating is around, you know, the, the almost the, the personality profiling, right, which you were kind of speaking about there to get that balance of skills. That's something, in my opinion, that is very, very underutilized. So, you know, of the hundreds of organizations we've helped, I'd say there's probably a handful that do that and do it consistently to make decisions on which is ironic isn't it because we're you know we're all talking about data and uh, <laughs> better decision making um so, a, a yeah good, a good example kyle um so so when we introduced it to my current team and and you know i should say that in in two years we, we're making headway in the organization but we're still at an early stage in terms of really um releasing value into the organization because it's a whole cultural shift in in the hr space in what we're trying to do but but when when we introduced the the team wheel into into the team um i took a group that on the the team wheel are called controller inspectors the people who um like to be able to um test out whether you know what's delivered is right and um be be very sort of um, obsessed about the the nature of the quality of the final output and simply taking that group of people about seven of them in the team to one side and said um, you know one of the things that that always concerns me is the work that we produce can be quite complex um, we're often delivering it to people who don't understand the complexity so there's an element of they take at face value what we've produced as being right and so I said you know it's a huge burden on us that this stuff has to be right because the people who are receiving it don't necessarily have the wherewithal to critique it and so I said to them you know so I'd, I'd really like to step up what we do in, in within the team from a QA point of view would that be something that would be of interest to you and every one of them just lit up and said, what, well, we have the opportunity to be able to go and um, review the work that we're doing across the team and be able to, you know, challenge and check and see if, if it's right. And I said, yeah, yeah, that sort of thing, you know, just um, kick the tyres and, and get a sense of um, whether the, the approach that someone's taken is the right one, whether they've, they've made a, a fundamental error somewhere. And every one of them said, oh, yeah, that'd be fantastic. Um, so it's something that we're now putting into place. We're giving those people from different parts of the team the opportunity to go and, you know, periodically go and kick the tires on that project that we're delivering over there and understand how it's developed to the point it's got to and, and give it almost that seal of approval of, of having asked all of the relevant questions to say, yeah, it seems fine to me. Um, I understand how you've done it. Um, so that's playing to their strengths. And, and yet, if we'd asked other people just generically, the majority of people would have said, I can't think of anything worse. I want to <laughs> be, you know, doing all the creative stuff yeah. and thinking about the problem and how we solve the problem. I'm not interested in doing all that detail stuff. So it, it is drawing those strengths out and finding an opportunity to to harness it in a way that is a, you know, of benefit to the team. Um, yeah. So, so it's it's a real opportunity, I think, to to make people feel valued as in their preference. Yeah, absolutely. So that brings us nicely onto the the kind of people analytics 
side of things, right? So, and I think when we, me and you spoke offline about this, um, you know, I kind of said, I find it both ironic and fascinating that every business on earth is kind of on this journey to be more data-driven or enabled or informed or whatever word we're using. And, you know, all of these massive data analytics initiatives that are going on, yet the biggest struggle for most business or data leaders is finding and attracting the right talent and retaining that talent into their business. But yet people analytics is probably one of the lowest adopted areas of analytics, you know, generally speaking. Why is that? Um, That's a very good question. Um, I'm not entirely sure why it is. I think that um, in some ways the HR space uh, I described it when I was recruiting one of my um, deputies who came from very much the, the customer marketing end of analytics. I, I described it as almost like the the last frontier of a place where there's an awful lot of data to go at, but very little being done. And as I said earlier, there are organisations who've been doing this for a decade or more and, and are quite sophisticated in this, but but they are few and far between. And even those that have been doing this for a few years often are still stuck in the world of producing an awful lot of static MI that isn't really telling you where you want to go and, and influencing how you do it. So my own view is that um, because the HR world has been slow to to adopt uh, this sort of approach and organisations, particularly, I guess, in the private sector, tend to be much more revenue focused and therefore it's all about the customer. The link back into, so what about our people? Because they're, you know, in, particularly in the services sector, they are the people who are delivering the the experience that the customer gets. And we all know, you know, anecdotally, if 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 you go somewhere and you and the service is awful, you virtually get the product thrown at you or something, then then you think well, I'm not going back there again. So you don't have to get into, you know, empirical research to sort of prove that uh, the customer experience is very much driven by the way that the employee handles that experience or delivers the experience. So I I think that. Um, as I say, is that last frontier, people have started to think, well, actually, um, there's the convergence here of how do I improve the customer experience? And there's this great untapped opportunity married to the world is beginning to become more challenging with um, uh, attrition, with um, how do you retain people? How do you spot talent in an organization to be able to um, stop that walking out the door and how do you build talent to begin with so how do you future proof your business so i think that people are gradually coming around to we need to start thinking a little bit more inwardly because it impacts directly on what happens outwardly from the business it isn't necessarily something that comes intuitively to people i have to say because there is still a very strong customer leaning but I think that when people start to to almost take that step back and and consider it probably as as you experience Carl in in your day-to-day experience of you know dealing with clients you must find that 
the more people reflect on these things, the more apparent these things become. But in the in just the, the run of things, people perhaps don't think in that way. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm fortunate that the chief people officer at HMRC, my person who's my manager, is is uh, a real advocate of taking um, you know that I know it's a hackneyed phrase, but an insight-led approach to how we do things. So that whole evidence base and um, being able to um, shape a better future rather than just events taking their their turn uh, is is you know uppermost in her mind and the culture that she's trying to build. Mm, yeah, it's it's very interesting to watch from our side of the fence this unfold and play out at the moment because you know the the challenge that most businesses have is that they're trying to grow at a scale which is bigger than the market not to mention the scarcity of talent and then the the sheer competition you know there's there's no business out there in the minute that i can see that saying you know we're just trying to hire one person you know it's normally a multitude of people over a longer period of time one of the biggest challenges is that you know not only then are they having to grow what they've already got there's you know the buckets dripping from the bottom as well in terms of attrition and all of that causes a huge headache because the market's shifted right you know so and then you get into conversations around well you're bringing people in at higher salary than someone else who's doing the same job so do you level up you know obviously it's so evident it's easier to retain someone in this market than it is going to, to go to go and attract someone new. And ultimately, you're probably going to, you know, you, you might be better off keeping someone that knows your business and knows how you work and is a valid team member and pay them the current market as opposed to going having to go and start again from from scratch. So these conversations fascinate me because I, I just think, you know, in a in a world where every business is, you know, trying to become data driven and I'm doing my little quotation marks here you know we're not actually using data or putting any of that into practice with the thing that are our apparently our biggest asset which is people right <laughs> it's, it's yeah. just some underlying irony in in all of this and i completely agree with you you know most businesses now if you you know you talk about you know you talk about what what success looks like and it all comes back to customer experience right and customer centricity and all of this stuff yet we're still in the same breath not thinking about well who are the people that are delivering our products and service to those customers and what role do they play in that journey that they have and again i'd say there's not many businesses that are looking at it through that lens either yet obviously as you mentioned there's been a few you know big success stories in this space but fundamentally it's probably not a way of thinking for most businesses i guess are there any practical kind of tips and you know you talked about your your boss the chief people officer being um you know very insight led in the approach to this in, in terms of how you tackle some of these issues are there any kind of practical tips that you can give the audience in terms of what that actually looks like day to day you know whether that's just kind of high level kind of project stuff like what what type of things are you trying to manage and, and measure well i i've done a few um uh, conference presentations where i i um, typically, you know, speaking to people in a data and analytics audience, um, the vast majority, if not all, working in in a customer sort of space. And I often have a slide where I um, I list all the things that in a customer analytics role that you you'd expect to be doing, 
and then on the other side of the the slide say you know and this is people and guess what you do exactly the same things so so we're looking at um, things like um, uh, segmentation so how do you build um, uh, a better understanding of in HMRC's case you know in excess in excess of 60,000 people how do you build um, an understanding of what that group looks like because We've got a hugely diverse workforce, uh, different professions, different backgrounds, ethnicities, um, you name it. And so a one size fits all clearly is is madness um, in the same way as, you know, you wouldn't uh, be running a sizable customer organisation and saying, well, well, we'll treat all our customers the same. Um, we were aspiring to be a great place to work. And so We've done a lot of work to understand what are the levers behind uh, what drives a great place to work, um, you know, in external research and so on to understand what what that phrase means and how do you then relate that into um, HMRC. And a lot of that comes down to um, being able to link the things that really matter to people in their everyday um, lives in, in the workplace. Um, it's not necessarily about big transformational change. It's the frustrations that are the barriers that that stop them from being able to do the things that they're doing that just wear them down, you know, week in, week out. Um, the the run-the-mill frustrations that if you could move those would make those people both more productive and um, uh, more more engaged. And so so we're trying to understand that whole employee experience life cycle where where does the employee um, touch uh, different points of the organization and what is the experience they have much as you would do with a customer and how can you improve that experience how do you start to design um, the workforce of the future and how do you start to spot talent within an organization so you're starting to build career paths and so a lot of our work is is about modeling um, future outcomes. Uh, what are the skills that we need in the future? Where are we likely to get those skills? How do we build um, a learning um, experience that provides the right opportunities to the right people at the right time so that we're not playing catch up, that we, we suddenly say, oh, we need a thousand people that are skilled in being able to do this in the next three months. And, and you think, well, it'll take us three months to build the learning program, um, let alone have them trained up. How do you get those people ready six, 12 months before you need them to go so that they're, they're ready to be deployed? How do you retain that talent in the organization? Who, who are the high performers? Who are our really successful managers? Um, how do we um, give them different experiences and being able to run uh, teams in, in different environments to be able to grow their experience, to be the real leaders of the organisation of the future. So a lot of this is about, you know, standard data um, forecasting, modelling techniques allied to, um, we do a huge amount of work in, in the insight or the research space, um, listening events, um, finding ways to to check the pulse of the organization and to be um, deploying our strategy which is um, a simple cycle of listen learn act and communicate and taking people around that wheel all the time to to ensure that 
when we hear things from our employees that we learn from it, but then we act upon it. So if we ask for people's opinions in surveys or through listening events or focus groups, we're actually using that information to drive something that's different so that we can then demonstrate to people that um, we listen to what you said, we've acted, we, we're communicating what that means and taking that forward so that we're an evolving organisation, we're not standing still. So so it's 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 a mix of that quantitative and the qualitative, underpinned, of course, by good quality data, which is the essential foundation for any organisation in this space. Yeah, that's the bit that's fascinating to me is, you know, we're, we're effectively just saying here that, you know, it, it's no different to any other project that you'd be running from a data and analytics perspective, right? It's just a different data set yet. So, so few are doing it. What What's the link here, Ian, in your opinion, to culture? And the reason I ask this is like culture is the thing that often gets blamed, right? You know, our, our projects aren't as successful as they should be. They, they didn't add enough uh, as much value as we hope they would. Yet, ultimately, you know, and if you listen to any other podcast about team performance or high performance teams and, and culture, it yep. always comes down and back to that culture really is just a collective of of people right that either love what they do or don't normally or and you know there's been plenty of examples where feedback's been taken you've got two teams that do the same things just in different parts of the business one is the the team has the best culture in the world ever right and the other team does the exact same thing with maybe a different manager different environment and they all hate each other and you know want to want to poke each other in the eye type of thing so it's, as I'm speaking with you here, it's becoming apparent to me that there's just an obvious real play between people analytics and culture. And yet culture is the thing that we're constantly banging on about saying, well, this is why we're not as successful as we should be. <laughs> and I'm kind of sat here going, OK, so you've got talent attraction is a problem. Talent retention is a problem. Defining career paths where people want to stay is a problem. Culture is a problem. This all relates back to having some kind of people analytics. And yet not many people are doing it. It just, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, I culture is another thing that fascinates me, and there's a whole chapter in my book, um, so so we've come full circle, um, that talks about culture and the importance of culture and communication. Um, I'm a great believer, maybe because of my interim background of having to deliver um, really big programmes in very tight windows, that um, uh, changing a culture is probably a lifetime's work and um, so so I always say to people understand the culture um, it's it's often not documented across an organization but funnily enough um, if you if you've got the right sort of intuition you can pick it up quite quickly and it always fascinates me how you take people in you know in, in HMRC we recruit several thousand people every year um, simply because of the size of organisation we are, um, and how quickly those people get assimilated into an HMRC culture, and yet they came from completely different backgrounds, and yet you know very quickly they they're absorbed into the culture. So I always say work with the culture. It's a bit like um, you know don't cut across the grain, go with it. Um, I I always say it's easier to evolve the culture than to change a culture. People talk about culture change. And I always think it's a recipe for disaster because 
cultural change is something that could take decades. Um, the evolution of a culture is something that happens naturally. So if you can build what you're doing into the evolution of that culture, then you're much more likely to succeed. I think what you are highlighting is, is much more around um, uh, uh, behaviours and performance rather than the, the overarching culture. And um, interestingly enough, we are looking to do some work coming back to, you know, those drivers of, of success um, in the organisation to, to compare uh, where we seem to have high performing teams, lower performing teams doing ostensibly the same sort of work and then mapping that through to so what's the customer experience from those teams and can we evidence that high performing teams are delivering a better experience and this is something that we can learn from the high performing team that you can then take across to the, the lower performing team and trying to you know build something tangible from the insight that we get from that because if you can crack that one obviously that is a really effective way of influencing the customer experience um, mm. through just observations that you've got from within your own organization of what works over here and trying to understand why it doesn't work over there uh, seems obvious but um, talking to people in different organizations um, uh, I'm, I'm quickly learning in the people space the obvious doesn't necessarily seem to to be get getting done if that makes sense so um, so those are the the interesting things I don't think you know when when we talk Kyle and your your um, interest in the people space obviously is 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 apparent a lot of this is is sort of almost like the blindingly common sense approach to things but as the saying goes you know the thing about common sense is it's not so common um, <laughs> and, and so just pulling people back and having sensible conversations around so what are the problems what are you seeing and and just understanding that a bit more and then aligning that with the analytics and the insight that we can bring often we find that we can just start to peel beneath that that veneer to say, well, actually, what we're seeing different is, you know, X, Y, and Z. Um, we can explore that further. We can give you some levers, but ultimately, you need to practice what we're we're giving you. Um, you need to execute on that with with your teams. Mm. Um, but that's the exciting bit, isn't it? That's um, starting to to unlock some of those grand secrets of an organisation as to how can you get it to be higher performing and ultimately how do we become a great place to work is is the thing that makes the job so interesting yeah absolutely i mean i i see the companies that move forward and start doing this and doing it effectively and probably at scale will be the people that take up some real competitive advantage from this because as we've we've already said right you know and I'm very vocal about this, you know, our community is often very much around data leadership, right? You know, like the events that we run and stuff like that. And and I've always been very vocal to say like, look, your success as a data leader is intrinsically linked to how good of a team you can build, how good of an, an environment and culture you can build for them to operate in. Um, so, and, and obviously the people component isn't the only important component, but it is one of right and yet we're we're not doing the same type of you know we're not doing the work with the same type of rigor that we are 
you know other parts of the business and obviously it's it's a you know from a from a talent perspective there's a whole host of obvious benefits in terms of attracting better talent because people want to work for in, in great environments retaining talent people don't leave great environments you know and then what it does in terms of the engagement with the, the work that they do intrinsically links with the customer right so it's just it's like as you said it's one of those common sense things that you just think well it doesn't make sense why more businesses aren't having a real focus on this but there you go i guess that's the opportunity um which is probably a great place to, to end this Ian. so look uh, conscious of time but it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you as uh, as always um if anyone wants to reach out to you um in terms of you know what they've heard today you know chat to you about the book anything like that what's the best place for them to do that probably via linkedin um i'm uh a keen advocate of LinkedIn. I think I was an early adopter when it first came around because it sort of coincided with me becoming an interim and uh, thinking, how on earth am I going to keep this address book of all these people I'm meeting and, <laughs> and want to keep in touch with? And LinkedIn was was just in its infancy at that time. And I thought, this seems great. Um, yeah. So so yes, I'm I'm uh, I'm a keen advocate of LinkedIn. Um, more than happy to chat to to people, share experiences. I'm really interested in. Um, people in in similar sorts of environments, uh, large organizations trying to do similar things because, you know, this the, the beauty of this is it's not entirely competitive in the same way as sharing a lot of stuff in the customer analytics space might be. Um, so so if anything, it's easier to share experience of what works in, in one organization with another um, and really keen to learn from from others who have probably been doing this longer than I have and I'm just the the new interloper uh, mm -hmm. the latest person from customer to come in to say oh, this sounds interesting give it yeah. a go yeah well I think there's all there's also something in that right you know data and analytics is broadly speaking data and analytics and it kind of all ties together it's just a different different data set right so um yeah very interesting william look it's been a pleasure um look forward to seeing how your journey unfolds and uh, we'll speak to you again soon thanks carl good all to right. chat soon bye-bye that's it for this episode of driven by data the podcast i hope you enjoyed it i'll be back next week speaking with another thought leader from the world of data and analytics until then Please follow Orbition Group on social media if you've not already done so, where you'll be able to subscribe and therefore be made aware of the podcasts as they arrive. And please share, like and leave reviews so that more people from our industry get to hear and benefit from these too. If you've got any questions or you want to suggest ideas for topics or potential guests, then please feel free to reach out to me. Thanks for listening and I'll be back next week. Bow, 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 bow